Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. Welcome to another edition of Pound Time Podcast. I am Brother L. Diazobra, formerly named Lyman White. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, we're back again uh, with Mr. Charlie Granger. We're sitting outside of his home here in the Burrs Church. Buses passing, picking up the students. Oh, you hear one now? Garbage truck passing by. <laughs> Got a little bit of everything going on out here. We're out in the, out in the community. A beautiful day, lovely day. So all these years, you've been standing up for your rights, human rights, civil rights, so just to do the right thing. Yes. So, so you are part of what Count Time stands for. Yes. And that is time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. Whatever it takes to, to bring justice and equality to a community, to a people, who really have not done or wrong anybody for any specific reason that other people just feel they want to take control or take advantage of other people? Uh, I like the way you say that, yes. I would say amen to that. And you told me you was kind of a quiet guy coming up to yourself, but all of a sudden now you end up catapulting yourself into some leadership when you got back to Louisiana. But what what are some things started happening to you when you got when you came back home after pro football? And I came back and I was interested in uh, in coaching at Southern, and I didn't know that was not going to happen because of the fact that uh, Southern was not bringing back students. Southern could not bring back students that was part of that march downtown on Crest, that whole march. The whole march was organized by Marvin Robinson, who's the captain of our team, and he's also SGA president. So, so now let, let's go back to that. Are you saying that Southern was not giving anyone opportunity? Was a part of what march? What, what, what march was that? In what year? In 1960, about three uh, HBUs was was designed to march and help integrate inner cities where blacks was not high to be cashiers or work in the stores. During those days, Southern was chosen to get Crest, who was downtown, who had... Uh, downtown where? Downtown Baton Rouge. So, uh, organized a march from Southern University where we turned the school out, had no classes. We all marched where I didn't march I was given a soldier security job of making sure that everyone that did not go and participate in the march could not stay in the dormitories. So my brother Jerry Granger and I went to every dormitory and got all the students out that was hiding under the beds. <laughs> <and everything. laughs> so y'all, y'all, y'all job was to go make them, make them go to the crest yeah, you, you either go to the march Oh, you can't stay in here. You ain't got, you ain't got to go to boys. You just got to get, get, like said, get the hell out of here. Then. Yeah, got to get out of here. <laughs> and uh, it so happened that uh, they made me take two courses. I did not have a minor. They made me get a minor before I left Southern University. And they made me take a class called Democracy versus Communism. And, and another class that I can't remember, I had to take six hours before I graduated, I had all my hours. I was ready to march, but I had to go uh, back to the classroom to take those hours. I mean, why was that? Because we participated in the march, and it must have been communists. They thought we was communists. They came up with this new course that we had to take: democracy versus communism. Like we was a communist party, and we was not doing not, nothing that was not 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 thinking that these people want to just be able to sit and eat at the lunch counter like everybody else or wanted a job like everybody else. That's correct. <laughs> so they figured you're a communist because you're not going by their rules. That's right. You must be a communist for coming down there marching to eat, you know. <laughs> what you could do. The, the boards of supervisors at Southern uh, had to go along with those wishes uh, of making us take those courses. And evidently they was angry at Mumford because he was told to send everybody home that was athlete. All the athletes, all, all Americans was in the march and doing something. 
Muffet told them no. So um, right now, none of Southern athletes could get a job at Southern who was under Mumford. So it was a backlash. But the people who took the marketing words communism and those other courses, they graduated. No, they didn't let us come back either. And there was quite a few players. There was quite a few. We track, anybody, track, tennis, football, but any sport under Coach Mumford. So Southern University, who is an HBCU, who was not on the you telling me Southern University was not on the side of giving its students an opportunity to participate and make a difference in the community where they live that, that they want to go eat, they had the right to go eat wherever they choose to go eat, right? So Southern University, you're saying Southern University itself did not work to help uh, orchestrate that process? They was on the side of... Um, I'm sure that there was uh, some that didn't mind, but they could not visibly participate in the open. They had some that was there that didn't want us to go. They knew that was what was going to happen to us. I remember Dr. Lee, he was crying on his knees. He said, don't y'all go down there and do this. He said, bad things are going to happen. It hurt him so bad, I think he died a year later. That whole thing probably killed him. Who was the president of Southern University at that time? Clark. President Clark. J.F. Clark. Yes. What was President Clark staying at that time? He did not have any. It was nothing for or against. If you're not for? No. Yeah. It was a shock. He didn't know that was going to happen. He, he didn't have any control of that discipline. Things happened so fast, and white power came in so quick. So students, along with another group of outsiders, orchestrated that whole process uh, at March? I was all students. I don't know. Uh, we didn't let the community know that we was doing that. So I don't know if anyone joined us or not. So y'all walked from Southern University. I mean, you said you, you didn't participate. In, you, you didn't march. You was, you was, your job was to secure it, to make sure everybody right. was out marching. Right. So they, they started marching from Southern University all the way to downtown downtown Baton Rouge. That's correct. And so you're talking about a long line of students. A long line of students, at least 600 or more. So how many students at Southern at that time? At least four or 5,000. And these people was, on the, was out walking. When y- when they, I've heard many stories of what happened that they were told that we don't serve you here and what have you, and it, it was so many of us in there that no one got served, but no one else got served either. It was too many for them to serve shut whites. Down. Everything got shut down for that it day. Was, yeah, basically it was shut down. And what was the fallout of that situation afterwards? Major fallout, white legislatures uh, came to the scene because it, it made news big time. Uh, people came to the table because we went back to school, went to classes the next day. But evidently things was not normal. They had some plans for us. Okay, now th- this was your senior year? This was my senior year. So, but you also, when you when you came back to Louisiana, when you decided you wanted to also uh, you work with the who was it, the Secretary of State or someone? Who you, who you worked with when you came back here? Well, I taught school over here in West Baton Rouge Parish. In Port Allen. In, in Port Allen. And uh, and I was asked to leave that job by the board because of the fact that another kind of thing happened in Port Allen where same kind of discrimination, um, a West Baton Rouge Parish Improvement Association group picketing the schools and the stores we're not hiring black people. So you was a part of that, too? I was a part of that, so, too. So you're a troublemaker. Did they call you a troublemaker? Uh, no. Are you like uh, John Lewis? You, it was good trouble, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, always, I always did believe that human rights, I wasn't, I wasn't fighting for civil rights at the time. Human I mean, rights? I mean, yes. Human rights, because I'm a human being. I'm a man. If any white man comes to me and act like he is more human than I am, and and he do the civil rights things. I mean, he's in serious trouble. I'm gonna let him know that he's not more human than me. He's gonna get his butt whipped. Yeah, he'll find out that he's a human being too. So civil rights never factored in your mind. It was just about your human rights. Yeah, civil rights because I figured he should know he even know more man than I was. He's stupid to believe that. 
Okay, okay. So, <clears throat> so you came back to West Baton Rouge and you got into more good trouble. All right, you just okay, you got in good trouble at Southern University. That was the right. first. That was the first good trouble you got into. Right, and I didn't know it was going to be trouble. I was just following the leader. So, who was yeah. the leader at that time? Uh, Marvin Robinson. Marvin Robinson. Yes, he's still he around. He was a veteran uh, that came there because of track. Track coach named Tom brought. He's going to be the head track coach at Southern, and he brought about three or four, five good track stars that was in the army. He brought them to Southern University, and Marvin um, was kicked out of school. He completed his education in Atlanta, I believe, at Mohawk or somewhere, one of the schools that was taking uh, black students that was kicked out of school. Where was Marvin from? You remember? Gary, Indiana. Gary, Indiana. Him and his brother. Yeah, it was two brothers that came there from uh, from army. So they came. Yeah. They went to the military and they served this country. And when they came back, they figured they could not eat what they wanted to eat. So they figured that something wasn't right about that. I think yes, and I think it was a planned thing. And I didn't know that the other universities. There were other universities that had the same kind of makeup. It was like it was a national organizer that was doing these things, and I wasn't in tune to that. But I participated, if you ask me, you know. And I didn't know the consequences of it, what was going to happen to me. I didn't know there was going to be consequences. And everything that happened to me, I didn't know. So you, you didn't think participating that you, y'all getting ready to disrupt a, a system that's in place. And this system... That, yeah, that, I wasn't thinking about what was going to come back on us. Yeah, I'd done everything that I was supposed to do. To come to Southern, I worked. I was a swim instructor and lifeguard to to uh, make funds, and I was preparing myself to go to college. So a lot of students was put out of school after that march? They picked the top six leaders. And they had to go somewhere else, and all those kids went somewhere else and got degrees, and some of them became lawyers and uh, doctors and what have you. They were the smartest and best students that left. You also was a local hero to a lot of people, but although you're from Lake Charles, Louisiana, you, you moved back to your wife's hometown of Port Allen, Louisiana, where you end up, you, got, you went to Southern University, got a master's degree, and also you end up you know, a teacher, an educator, and running for political office. Let's give us some background to that. I was part of uh, a community-based movement politically where the black men, uh, not excluding women, black men in the state of Louisiana decided to uh, hold political offices because they figured that that would be the key way to map out what we were going to be in the future Father McKnight in the Lafayette area, uh, Emmett Douglas, uh, who's a black millionaire, people like him and, and the group of people out of New Orleans, we all decided to uh, to run for office in, in the state of Louisiana. And my first uh, political office expiration was, uh, I mean, the sheriff of West Baton Rouge Parish. Of course, later on, after uh, that did not happen. So you ran for sheriff of where? Of West Baton Rouge Parish. What year was that? 1965, uh, Somewhere in that area, because I'm thinking I ran for city council in one in 1968. That was uh, a couple of years later. So uh, talk about the first thing first, where... Blacks all over the state of Louisiana participated in the political ramification of the state of Louisiana. Now, the next thing was that you said a group of men got together and y'all decided who was going to run for what office. I ended up running for uh, city councilman about a year or two later after I ran for sheriff. Ran for sheriff against Belvin Bajeron. So, but but you that is, that's not something you just up and did. Y'all sit down and strategize on who was going to run for what office. We did 
picked the office that we was going to run for. And, and they said, Charlie, you run for sheriff. Who, who was part of this group? Who, who was the other men part of this group? Edward Searcy was like a leader. Uh, Huey Gray. You say Edward Searcy? Edward John Searcy, yeah. He was, a, he was a principal at the school. No, he was just a teacher, teacher of 30 years or more. He had been around for that long. Okay, so uh, Huey Gray. Who was a local businessman here and educated? Too. He was a teacher too. Okay. Coach Patterson, who was a coach at the, at the school at that time, you know. And so you ran for sheriff, and uh, you and you lost. I lost by a very small margin, and of course we found out that I probably had won. But uh, similar to what Trump is saying, <laughs> now they stole the votes. <laughs> But they they did not steal votes, and they had people voting that was already dead. People that had been dead for 20 years voted against me. The people that was alive did not go to the polls. We found out about it. Uh, Through Atlanta, Georgia, they had a way that we processed that. So Georgia was was involved way back then? No, they had some kind of national organization association that was federally but back then y'all back then y'all you could it. you could report the people that voted so you y'all reported back to georgia we, yeah all all this all the uh information that went back to georgia or whatever that was showed that the people that voted in west Virginia's parish well, most of them was dead but for me to counteract against that they had along the books that say that you have to file charges within 24 hours or after the election. After the election. And then you have to continue on that. If you didn't do that, if you missed, if you missed those hours of filing charges, then we didn't know about that. So even though everybody can say, yeah, the Granger, that's true, that did happen. It was too late. It was too late. They they have no laws on the books to counteract that. So, no so you lost the bid for sure. Now you run for city council of West Baton Rouge too. Port Allen. Port Allen. City yeah. council of Port Allen. Right. How did that go for you? Okay, for, for Port Allen, uh, it was very interesting. I was running for redistricting. We did. We fought it out of, out of, it came out of Washington, D.C., called to our census, and we actually redistrict Port Allen. So we was going to have a city councilman. Uh, in the community where I live at, in another uh, city council across town, uh, Mr. Richard Lee was was who the swimming pool was named after him and Reverend Williams it's was same, running. It's the dad of the Richard of Richard Lee, who is the present day Richard mayor. Lee grand grandson, because he's that was his grandfather. Richard Lee Jr. and then so the present day mayor is named Richard Lee. Yeah. And Richard Lee has a daddy stays on the corner. So the old man, whatever his name was, I'm, he must be Richard Lee the third. If his name was really Richard Lee, you know, because mm-hmm. his name was Richard Lee. That's who the swimming pool was named after, Richard Lee and, and Reverend Williams. So I ran against uh, another black man, and I won by uh, 40 votes or who, something who, like that. Do you remember who you ran against? Who was a, who's the other, other uh, candidate that you ran against? Richard Lee was the only one. Oh, you ran against Richard Lee? Yeah. And you beat him? Yes. Oh, okay then. And that was the first time that office was ever open for that district. We the first time we had a redistrict coming out of Washington, D.C. So what year was that? That was in 1968. So you ran you ran for this, a city councilman in uh, Port Allen, and you're not even from Port Allen. You're from Lake Charles, Louisiana. That's right. So you developed that kind of relationship that you was able to come here and impact this community, and people looked up to you and voted for you because of the man they knew or felt you were. That's correct. That says a lot. And other people like Huey Gray, Cersei, them, they was from here? Yes. They're from West Baton Rouge Parish. So you was an outsider. Not from Port Allen, yes. I was an outsider. Big time. But they saw you as a real man. And That's somebody, correct. Somebody they, who truly cared about the I observed my participation for, as being for real. And you also, when you when you when you you served for what one term, four years? I served for two terms. I, I ran in one, I think, the second term, and I ran for mayor after that. Instead of running, oh, you ran for mayor of Port Allen. I ran for mayor of Port Allen at least two times. And you you, you lost both times. I lost to two different people both times. 
So, so you you had you had a lot to overcome because you was one of the first to one of your your tribe, I guess, in origin to run for any political office of those nature in this in the Port Allen area, which you still live to this day. Yes, I would say so. At that time, uh, the potential was here in, in Port Allen. Well, well, what did the other men run for? What were they running for? State representative. Who ran? You remember who ran for state representative? Hugh Gray ran for state representative, and Edward Cersei ran for city council in the Irvinville area. Okay, so let's move forward then. So now you 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 ran you one city council, served two terms, then you ran for mayor twice. So, but also you was part of the Deacon of of Defense. Deacons for Defense and Justice that came out of Burger Lucy. Talking about uh, I was a, West Baptist Parish chairman of that organization. We, we were chartered under under the Bugaloosa tribe. So you worked with uh, AZ, 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 Young. AZ Young? Yeah, well, right. AZ Young was part of that group. What was the, who was and what was the purpose of the Deacons of Defense? Uh, quite as a gap, the Deacons of Defense organized and they sneaked legislature in where we could perform in every parish the same justice at the sheriff's department and they voted on it and and they didn't realize what they had done so actually we were legally so legally by law we were legally by law y'all had to the do right. the same and the same rights as as the sheriff in every parish that we were in did you realize at that time that y'all had that kind of power and y'all was given authority to operate yes at, at that time i I let the sheriff know who I was and what was going on. Uh, I let him know. He knew, but he didn't want everybody else to know, but he knew that I did. And So you, you still took office of a sheriff. <laughs> you know, you lost other sheriff. You, you won it in another way. Yes, you could say it like that. So, you, so the deacon of defense was a legal Organiza- organization. Yes, it was. That was by the state. Given yeah. stat- statue under the law by the state. Yes. To operate. I, w- I would say so. And w- what was the purpose? What was the oper- what was the purpose of the operation? You say, say For the, just like the sheriff. Right. Well, we we were what a lot of people didn't realize we were securing civil rights, uh, but not that we was going to have to discriminate. We would be supporting what was happening to black people. Hey, you you get out of here, you know. And uh, we did some of that now. We What do you mean? What do you mean? Uh, when Ku Klux Klansman in West Baptist Parish, if Ku Klux Klansman was attacking a family like it did in some areas, if they called me, I'd send some of my soldiers up there and we would make sure that would stop. So you call them soldiers, not officers? Officers, whatever, you know. We're officers. We could say officers. I, they was just a, a part of the tribe. So, so you telling me that the, the people out of Bugaloosa snuck in some some law, snuck into the into the Louisiana legislature. The Deacon of Defense started in Louisiana or it started somewhere else? This started, as I know, uh, in, in Bugaloosa. Uh, the originality was right here in Bugaloosa for legalizing it. There was some Soldiers that came home from military people, military people that did not like the way that they were treated in Bugalusi and wanted to do something about it legally. So they decided to organize the Deacons for Defense and Justice. And y'all had bylaws, and we had bylaws and what have you, yes. But you, you, you remember who. I knew A.Z. Young was a name I remember because of the march they did from uh, from Bugaloosa to the state capitol. Right. What was that about? That was uh, letting people know that we were here in our whole concerns, and we were legally in this state. That's that what it was. It was an eye-opener to all the people that, uh, like the Klansmans and what have you, let them know that we was ready to perform. And it's best that y'all don't attack none of our people. So so that march out of Bugaloosa, led by A.Z. Young, was on behalf of the Deacon of Defense. It was, the Deacons of Defense. 
It was yes. Deacon Defense who led it the was. march. It was. It was. Not on behalf. It was the it, Deacon Defense. It was their march. It was their march. It was their march, and one of my jobs was to make sure that they came through the area where Klansons were located heavily to make sure that we protected them. So y'all was able to carry y'all weapons yes. at that time? We had all our weapons at that time, rifles and what have you. And there was no no foul, no harm done do, doing that march? No, it was not done. You know, he, everybody made it back, made it to the capital safe. Yes. Inside. I, I think everybody who, like the Klansmen, knew and, what was going on. And that march took how long? One day, I guess. I don't no, know. It took a, took a few days. I remember. Oh, I don't uh, forget. Years ago, I remember they had they, they had the people's feet them on the side of the road. And oh, those okay. Kind of so they, they, they might have. I believe they stayed in the in tents. They left. I don't remember the process, but uh, it might have took. They left one day and got there the next day. Okay, that would be a long walk to finish uh, in one day. It's a long walk. Yeah, Bugaloosa. Bugaloosa got to be <laughs> yeah. what? Well, Bugaloosa is seventy yeah, miles. Be, no, it's longer than further than that. It's further than that because I I go to Washington, Louisiana, and and that's at least eighty miles. And Bugaloosa is no more than 10, 20 miles yeah. away. You know, it's about 80, 90 miles. Yeah, so eighty, it's, ninety it's a, miles. It's, it's okay. a long. How did you become the deacon of? De- How did y'all end up setting up a deacon of defense office here? Okay, it, in West Baton Rouge. Again, because of our activities in West Baton Rouge Parish, with John Cersei, who was a soldier, Cersei's image actually grew larger, and Cersei kept up with everything that was going on. So John Cersei was the one that decided that's what we should do. He knew. He found out what was going on, and he was the information carrier during those days. He brought in the information that was going on here and elsewhere. Wherever we want to participate, had that kind of information available. So y'all, y'all had men taking care of a lot of business at that time. At that time, yeah. We had a lot of men, and who, who had, just about who, in every parish— you had some strong men that was ready to... Uh, Who had the ability to, to organize. To organize and do some things. Do yeah. some and thing. they, they every to, parish, the best men came out. And, and, and everybody worked together. Everybody worked together. We had statewide meetings. And now they say, as, as a people, we operate like crabs in a barrel. But at that time, people didn't do that. They worked together. We worked together, yes. No, we didn't have any. We had strong black men that was not interested in nothing but human rights and better their community. Yes, we believe we didn't believe in any other strong bodies taking over our civil rights or human rights. So y'all was concerned about human rights. Civil rights didn't even exist at the time. Well, civil rights was there. I'm the one that bring the human rights in. Okay, then. Yeah, that's my thing. Those are my words, the human rights thing. Because human rights would would cover everyone. So human rights and, is bigger than civil rights. Yeah, human rights is bigger than civil rights because right. but human rights that were when when I came to Baton Rouge we, we marched downtown, but at nineteen nineteen sixty eight when I went to work in South Baton Rouge, the elaborate country club did not let Italians and Irish ones and Jewish people come to their clubs. They, when we fought for rights, everybody rode in on our the rights that we fought. You know, everybody became uh, uh, civil writers, but they were human writers. No, nobody know that we, we've carried more people to freedom uh, under the black movement. So uh, when even now, when we fight, you have we have to fight for everybody. Uh, our civil rights has covered women, and 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 now the uh, homosexuals. Everybody yeah. has rode in on 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 the on the blood and flags that we carry for civil rights. A lot of people look down on us as color, but nobody looked at us as the real super. We're, we're the super civil rights fighter because we got so many other races on our back riding and hiding. Hiding and riding. <laughs> uh, so now you say when you when you when you went and took another job. Where was that job at in Baton Rouge? 
The third job I took in Baton Rouge was in South Baton Rouge Community Neighborhood Service Center where Joe Delpit uh, was the chairman of it, John Hatcher, A.G. Harden. Now, now what Joe Delpit are you talking about? Joe Delpit was the first elected black city councilman of East Baton Rouge Parish and one of the first black uh, elected uh, state legislators. And, and, and the chicken shack. And the chicken shack, Joe right. Delpit. All right. Good and man. my wife's cousin, Joe Delpit. Oh, good man, good man. All right, dude. Let's, so you took a job in the South Baton Rouge Community Center doing what? I was in like the neighborhood center called coordinator during those days. You like directed that center and that center was there to help poor people. During that time, the federal government put a lot of money in poverty programs. And that's what we were supposed to do, make sure that people that was in poverty was cared for. And we had Head Start centers, those kind of things, and just about all of our centers in East Baton Rouge Parish. So I directed the the center in in South Baton Rouge, and and we organized um, self-sustaining community groups, so I was organizing people to put teeth in their mouth so, so, during so, that time. Like Annie Smart, who, who was well-known all over the United States uh, at that time. But Annie Smart would walk into a health unit and say, my, my people sitting here and we want this kind of help from you. And, and we would demand it. And we would get it. Uh, so you mentioned Annie May Smart, they called her. I just Annie Smart. Annie Smart, and Annie Smart was the first woman in this from the Baton Rouge or this area to do what? Give give us some background on Annie Smart. You worked very closely with Annie Smart. I certainly Annie did. Annie Armstrong Smart, right? <laughs> oh, well, she Armstrong Armstead. Armstead, I would Armstead. say Armstead. Okay, because she was uh, uh, that's part of her roots, you know. So also, Annie Mae Smart was the first one, first woman of. Uh, she got the Soldier on the Truth Award, which she ran against one of the uh, Long? one of the loans. Which one was it? Uh, Russell Long, who was possibly the United States Senator from this part of the of the world. So Annie Mae, Annie Smart Annie Armstead Smart ran against Russell Long for the U.S. Senate. Yes. In the late, and she almost won in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, in, 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 in the seventies, in the in the seventy one, seventy two. And her, her her theme was poverty is violence. <laughs> that's that's what I read one time. Yeah. And where did that come from? I I I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's the thing that you live through, and you have to go through that. She because she came out of poverty herself. Oh, big time. And she had how many children? She had two sets of triplets, a set of twins, and five singers. <laughs> Say it one more time. <laughs> two sets of triplets. That's six children. Yeah, a set of, a, 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 a set of twins. So that's and, eight. And, and five singers. Eight plus five? Yes. That's what, 13? Ooh, that's a lot of children. That's all <laughs> yeah. I can tell you. That's a lot of children. Yes. Ooh. So she had... Two sets of triplets and a set of twins. Yeah. And she raised them without a husband? Well, uh, during those times, centemic kind of racism made the man leave home if he didn't, if he wasn't there providing, he couldn't stay in the house. So her husband couldn't stay in the house if he, if he was unemployed. Uh, so, uh, the welfare made sure a man did not stay in the house. It, it happened in, in my home, too. I mean, uh, my my sisters that was under me, they, they ran into that kind of St. Timothy thing because my mother, uh, after she got sick and couldn't work and what have you, to raise the rest of the children, my family was seven of us, and the last of them were girls, and she tried to get welfare and... and and uh, they had to put my daddy out the house. So that started back then. So oh, that's, that's, yes. that's not new. Centimetric racism been going on for years. 
I think so, like systemic. Like yeah, systemic. systemic. Okay. Yeah, we get it right. So, so to to this day, you said that started back then in the sixties, where a man that could not. In, that was in the. That was in the fifties. In the fifties, where a man could not be in the home of his family. That's correct. They was working on manhood way back there, and 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 they made the woman. Uh, something that we didn't need to have back in, even way back in those days. Religiously, if you was a member of the Church of God and Christ, the man could not read the Bible in the church. A woman would have to read the scriptures. And then the preacher preached on the scripture after it was read. And they would have, they would have white infiltrators, uh, little white, men uh, would come in and sit down and see if things are still going the way they organize it. So to keep their system going, they had to check in to make oh, sure that yes. it was going the way they, they planned it, not the way you planned it. That's correct. So you had to go plan another, make another plan when they left to figure out how you're going to continue. Well, I wasn't doing any planning during those days. I didn't know. What percentage of the Bible they didn't want us to preach? It was part of the Bible they didn't want us to preach. Since there is a real God, they didn't want us to find out. Because God will take care of you. If God was going to take care of you, God did say if you pray, say the right prayer and ask, and you you will be given. And, and the white man didn't want you to know that. He didn't know that God would... So he wanted to wipe them out. He, he if, if I prayed for it. <laughs> but, so, so he didn't want you to pray to, to remove him. That's right. Because <laughs> he was the devil. He, he didn't want us to pray that, that you know, that we wipe him out. You know? So he watched that. I didn't know what was going on, you know. During those days, I was wondering what was going on. I was an observer during the time. And, uh, Things just didn't sound right to me. You know, the, one of the things that I observed when I was living in Chicago, that that was possibly the most racial divided city that I've ever seen before, because I had never seen a city where there was uh, Italians, Sicilians on this end of town, there was blonde Italians here, there was Polish Blondes here with blue eyes, and then there was uh, Chinamans, and and there was Jewish, and and uh, the Italian people was running the the city. I had never seen nothing like that before. With with that kind of observation and wisdom under my vest, getting back to South Baton Rouge Neighborhood Service Center, like I said, I helped uh, I helped a white man that came in the community that was going to give. Some of my hooligans, a hundred dollars to do something that I thought was impossible. Well, they did such a good job. Uh, they came back to me, the same man, and offered me a membership in the Ku Klux Klan. And I asked him, "How was that possible?" He went on trying to convince me. I, I tell you, I don't think I would fit there. But after observing that and helping my black kids get out of jail, I had a black jury that evidently became. Clansman, because he stopped doing everything that I was trying to get done, and it was a problem because he was a black judge trying to move up to state supreme court. And you know this judge too. That some of the things that I've, I've done, it's, it's really been so, uh, because so, of wisdom. So you could, you, you could have been a clansman. I could have been a clansman. And one of the other things I noticed since I became a mason that. Clansmen and some of these policemen, they observe, if you're a mason, you, you can get what you want. They're not going to attack you. I know that I was trying to get a boy out of going to prison for having a, a cut-off shotgun. And uh, when we gave him the, the Klansman room, he let us talk to him. And, uh, and that was Rag. Rag was the number one Klansman in, in this part of the country. Rag was listening to us because one of the things that you have to become now when you're moving up, a Klansman, a Mason, 
is where you will find most of those skies. They, they have that particular background. And if you're a Mason and going to court, you'd be surprised some of the things that you could have good happen for you. And I'm letting you know this because there are a lot of us as Masons don't even know that. Those Klansmen, if they're intelligent... Not Mason, because you also is an Omega, too, right? Omega is all black. Okay, they don't have no Omegas at LSU unless you're black. You have black Omegas at LSU. So so the Mason are diverse organization. Yeah, Mason is diverse. And we make the same signs, and we understand that, you know. So the signs will open the doors up for you. Signs will open the door for you. Signs will get you safe in there. So if you run into, uh, I would say, any state policeman that's in the state of Louisiana and a captain of Mississippi, they have to become Masons. I think it's a mandatory thing. I think it's a mandatory thing that you be more than just a Klansman. I know most presidents are Masons. That's for a specific reason. That's that's a particular reason. (laughs) That particular reason, they could go into places uh, foreign and what have you. Don't matter where you are. It, it, it takes. I heard it takes three to raise one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Then. All right. You know how it goes. I don't know. I'm just. I heard. That's something I heard. Oh, okay. Well, it sounds like you hear. So, so you also uh, spoke about with the with the city of Baton Rouge and the, working with the, what that was the community neighborhood service that was a, that was a, a, that was something happened one day where there was a, a Baton Rouge Parish jail yes that you that they call on you to right it was a it was a about 87 prisoners was grown because they didn't have <clears throat> no way to take showers or exercise and and a lot of things wasn't good wasn't happening to it so they put a knife to the throat of deputy Briggs and uh, they called for uh, Reverend Jemison for help. They reached out to Joe Delpit for help. So they uh, they told all those deputies and, and the black deputies and white deputies, y'all better go get a man. They said, well, who you want then? I did they call all his names. They said, you better go get Charlie Granger. So two, Who's the two that calls the deputies sheriffs came to the community center in, in, in uh, South Baton Rouge to get me to come talk to them who to the, get what they wanted. Who was the sheriff at that time? What no, year What, what year was that? I, I know you got an article on it. Okay, was I was in still in South Baton Rouge Neighborhood Services. I moved up as the director of all the centers in 1970. So that was 1968, 69, somewhere in there when that happened. And, and then I became director over all the centers in the East Baton Rouge Parish. And you, and you got proof of that. You got an article that talks about the release of y'all the... Got, y'all got the article. Yeah. I'm the one that... I'm the one that said, get there. Y'all better go get Charlie Granger. Uh, so you, 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 you made... You matter of fact, over the years, you got quite a few people out of prison. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I got a lot of people out of prison. I got people out of federal prison. And Angola, the big Angola uh, state prison. I, I went on there days that they came before the commissioners and and uh, talked for them and got them out of prison. What well, what made you decide to even go down there and speak on behalf of prisoners? Of uh, their needs, the the kids thought that since I could run my mouth and talk so good, Granger, why don't you come speak for me and get me out of here? You know. So who, who? And Linwood West, I remember Linwood. He was my coach. Linwood was in federal prison. I got him out of federal prison. So uh, he had a friend of his that was in Angola coming up. He said, "Great John, I want you to go get him out." He had been in prison for 19 years. I went there. Who was there? And his son is uh, Silk. Oh, okay. Silky Slim? Silky Slim's daddy. Silky uh, uh, Chiron? Chiron, yeah. You got Chiron? Father out of you got, yeah, prison. You got, you got Silk father out of prison. I got Silk's father out of prison, yeah. Who's Chiron, which is named Chiron. Yeah, whose name's Chiron. And you met Silky? At the prison. He was in prison? No, he was just there to hopefully that his father get out. After 19 years? After 19 years. I didn't, I didn't know Silk. You know, he was a young boy at the time. Yeah. 
And, and that must have happened, what, 25, 20 years ago? 68, 67, 68, almost when I was still at South Baton Rouge because I oh, moved up. Oh, you got in my I moved back up then. to 1970. And, I was over. The, and he and he had done that much time back then. Yeah. Well, he went to prison at 18, at 18 years old. Somebody set him up. His first time that he sold drugs, he ended up in, in Angola. So whoever was selling drugs, they needed somebody to be a fall partner, and he didn't know what he was doing. So you remember the history? Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. So what, what, what did you feel your purpose was as you have journeyed through this life at your age now? And the things you have done, accomplished, or you would wish you would have accomplished, where you are with, with when you sit down and, and what, what do they call it? reflect back on yeah. your life. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I wish I would have known. I wish I would have had a good basic background when I was coming up to have known that I should have been a lawyer or a doctor, something like that. I didn't. I didn't have that. I had two for other come from. When I looked around in my community and I didn't see no leadership and and my father wasn't taking care of family. And I say, I'm going to be a big boy, 6'2". I say, I think I'm going to be big enough to get a scholarship. I want to go to college and I want to finish college because when I become 21, I will be a man. That's when they say I'm be a man at 21. And that thing they call black men, I looked around at how they were treating uneducated black men. They were still calling them boy. Even if they were 50 years old, a white man would call you a boy. So keeping in line with the word boy, I said 21, I want to finish college and have all of these degrees behind me. And I want to be a real man, and no one better not call me boy. So when you're talking about the human, you understand the human rights thing, that thing that really fired me up is that at 21, my goal was to finish college. That's why I didn't let Southern send me back home. That's why I didn't let Coach Muffet send me home when I was too small. I had to make sure that I was getting past that boy age and have an education. That boy thing is the thing that really got me that far. And I wish that someone would have told me, Granger, I think you could be a lawyer or a doctor. Then I would have I would have pursued it. I just didn't have it in view to pursue it. I, I didn't have it on my rector scale. And I think I had normal abilities to be a lawyer. It was just things that came to me normally. All right, go ahead on. So I, I wish I'd have had, uh, that's where leadership is important. I think that's the reason why I try to show so much leadership in the community. I'm a hands-on person. If I'm helping to get a kid out of jail, if he's a grown man, and if he's not talking like I wanted him to talk, I automatically hit him on his shoulders. I slap shit out of him on his shoulders and make sure he listened. And I've had him bring things. Some of them had pistols on them. I said, well, you ain't going to be able to get it. It was, who going to stop me saying, man? So fear was not a part of your life. Fear was never a part of my life. Fear nor doubt. Nothing. Fear and doubt kill more dreams than anything in life. And you never, there's, you don't ever remember being in that place. I don't remember. I wouldn't let that happen to me. That's, a power, that's powerful. Now, where at, at your point, in, at this point in time of your life, you, what we call, you're on the other side and we all gonna be transitioning one day, and what are your thoughts or concern or where you are when you think about this thing we call life? Okay, one of the things I was just thinking the other day, and to make you laugh, I, I was I spiritually I, I brought in a, in church, and I, I I told you about the black woman uh, whose educational level and study in the Bible was so far advanced than the black man and preacher. And I was observing, uh, say, typically, look like the white man has control. I'm observing of the Bible where uh, it's almost like those federal programs I fought for for set aside, 10% set aside. 
He almost got us going into heaven in the 10% part of it. I think he got us in the set aside because the Bible say the more you grow in him, the closer you're going to be to the throne. Now, the growth, I'm looking at the growth for black men and black people. It's not going to be enough to get us that close to the throne. So I thought about that 10% set aside. I say, you know, most preachers are preaching 10%. You're going to heaven, yeah. You ain't got no problem. You're going to heaven. Don't worry about it. But you're going to be up there where most of the black people are going to be at in the 10% where white folks has, has been controlling everything you did. We're talking about systemic. We better do that with religion, too. And where are we going to be? Because he done done a job on on our health and in religion, and where we going, you know, we we just not we just not teaching and preaching, going to heaven where we going to be close to the throne. I don't think that we need to uh, observe the well. I know they call some of us pastors and preachers and ministers, bishops. Uh, you know, we we've gone through so many things, and I don't know who is really who's really. Uh, preaching and teaching us to not to be in the 10% set aside when we go to heaven. We're going. We're going to be there. But we're going to be only where poor people at. <laughs> we're not going to get the poor benefits. in mind. We ain't going to get the benefits out of when we get to heaven. Then, you I ain't going to get the benefits when you get there. God's going to take you in heaven because that's where you prayed to get there. Mr. Granger, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be in your presence and your company and to sit down here and uh, like the young folks say, chop it up. Yeah. <laughs> we got a chance to have a long discussion today. I think we've been at it for at least, oh, I say two and a half hours or so. And I uh, got a lot of great information. And, uh, and we know we can't get it all. It's so much more information and so much in you, your greatness, things you've done, the, the, your accomplishment what you've done for your community, your people, just, just, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal to me. And, uh, and I think about you, you and your wife, how y'all work together to make a lot of this stuff happen. It's just amazing. And, uh, I feel honored. And this, this one day, hopefully where we all gonna be able to look back and, and talk about a great man whose name is Charlie Granger. A Grange. Look at that French, that French butter. But thank you for being part of uh, our count time discussion. Thank you for standing up and being counted. Back at you. Uh, I appreciate um, you, and I have been appreciating you for a number of years because you've always been there for me. You got my back. And I hope that greater things uh, come out of this, what we're doing and what you're doing. And um, people could see you for what you're worth and uh, that you were sending people further than above that 10% set aside when they go to heaven. I think you're going to be helping a whole lot of people go to heaven from here on out. <laughs> go to heaven. <laughs> that ain't why we done this podcast, but if, they, we can, if this podcast can help them get there, well, thank, thanks be to God. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Granger, for being a part of thank our count time. We appreciate you. Okay. And always remember this here. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. And I'd like to thank you for tuning in once again to Count Time Podcast. I'm Brother L.D. Zobra. Thank you once again. Remember, it's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's Count Time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted.